Right, good morning and welcome to another episode of This Is Not What We Planned On Church Looking Like Today. My name is Andy Lipless and I'm one of the elders here at Bridge Community Church. And if there's one thing we learned from 2020, it's how to be flexible and adapt to changes when life throws things at you that you didn't see coming. Maybe it's a global pandemic or maybe like this weekend, it's a snowstorm. Either way, we're so grateful for people like Kyle and Pastor Rob who understand how to use these technologies to stream our services so that you and I can still connect even if we can't be together in person. So if you have been following along with us uh, here at Bridge, you'll know that we are in a sermon series right now called Rooted, where we're going through the Book of Romans a section at a time, week by week, and really digging into this book of the Bible to see what it is the Apostle Paul has to say first to the church in Rome in his day and and to the church uh, of our time as well, because we believe it's so important to establish our roots uh, into the truth of the gospel at a time where there's so much uncertainty and questioning of what really truth is. We want to make sure that we've got a firm understanding of the foundations of our faith in Christ. And there's no better book in the Bible, in my opinion, than the book of Romans to be able to give us that insight. Uh, so that's what we've been stepping through. Uh, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, the author of the book of Romans, does an excellent job of just spelling things out step by step, laying out a case for, you know, here's the condition that we are all in. Uh, here's us versus God. Here's what God has done for us. And a lot of people have compared his style of speech and the way he lays out his arguments to be very similar to what a lawyer might do in a court case, laying out the evidence against someone who's been charged, uh, providing a a sentence. Um, But I'll be honest with you, I've never actually watched an entire court case before to say one way or the other if what Paul is doing is really like a court case. I'll tell you what I have seen, though infomercials. Oh, if life could only be as easy uh, and our problems as easily solved as what we see on infomercials. Every night we'd have a perfect night's sleep. All of our blankets would have sleeves. We'd have clear skin, chiseled bodies, perfectly rotisseried chickens, if rotisseried is a word. If you've got too much hair, try the Flowbee, not enough hair, call Hair Club for Men. Everything would just be so simple. Um, And, of course, obviously, things in life aren't that simple. But in my in-depth research of infomercials, I have found one pattern to seem to keep resurfacing in these infomercials. And it is a three-step process to how the person selling the product makes their case to their audience. It goes something like this. Step one is to highlight a problem that everybody has and no one's been able to solve yet. Step two is to offer a solution that seems almost too good to be true. And at that point, you should have your audience right on the fence of, should I buy this? Uh, And then to seal the deal, you use those four famous words that I'm sure you've all heard before, but wait, there's more. So you're probably asking yourself, Why is this guy on a tangent talking about infomercials? I thought we're talking about the book of Romans. Well, what I want to uh, show you this morning is that the way Paul lays out the book of Romans 
actually follows this three-step pattern that we see in infomercials today. Let me show you what I mean. Step one, if you remember, is highlight a problem that everyone has and no one has been able to solve. In the book of Romans, we see this in the third chapter. Verse 23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's our problem that everyone has, sin. And no one's been able to solve it. In the beginning of Romans, Paul talks about the law and how the law was given so that we would understand what steps to take to be righteous and what the criteria was to be holy in God's sight. But none of us in our own flesh were able to meet those requirements of the law. That sin that was in us is the problem that all of us have and no one's been able to solve. Step two, offer a solution that seems almost too good to be true. In the book of Romans, we see that solution in the fifth chapter. Verse eight tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this is not a cheap product that God is selling here. The price for our salvation was extremely expensive. But the part that seems too good to be true in this case is the fact that we weren't the ones that had to pay it. God sacrificed his own son. Jesus laid down his life. He took the punishment for our sins so that we could be in right relationship with God at a time when we had done nothing to deserve it. So that's the point in the infomercial, if you will, where you may be on the fence between, is this for me or not? And now comes the good part, because I have the honor of introducing chapter 8, which is the point in the infomercial where the Apostle Paul would be saying, but wait, there's more. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read the first 11 verses together. Uh, Romans chapter 8 starts off like this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so condemned in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So let's pause there for a moment. Here we see both the sin problem and the solution that God has offered to us earlier in Romans. The solution is that we are no longer condemned because Jesus took on our sins and he took the punishment that was spelled out in the law for us. So now we are no longer condemned. Let's pick up with verse 5. Verse 5 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is both life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so here you start to see the transformation that comes with this new life we are given, the comparison of our old life, which just led to death, and our new life, which leads to peace. 
uh, chapter 8 continues, uh, picking up with verse 8. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are in the realm, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of Christ lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And it is the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He, I'm sorry, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. So did you pick up what the more was in this offer? The more is the Holy Spirit living in us. So you see, if God had stopped just after step number two, Jesus dying for us, first of all, that would have already been more than we deserved. But he would have been saying, you just need to stop. You can't do this. Let's just let Jesus do this for you. Instead, what we see in chapter 8 is the more that he promises, where he says to us, actually, you can do this. I will give you the power. You see, I love the way Chris Langan puts it in his Through the Word uh, ministry. He said, God doesn't lower his standards. He raises the dead. You see, God didn't lower the criteria or eliminate the requirements of the law for what it means to be righteous. Because we couldn't fulfill that in our own flesh, what he did instead is use the Spirit to raise us up to that level. So this Holy Spirit that we're talking about that lives in us and gives us the power, what I want to do is just take a minute and give you a little bit of background so you understand who exactly he is. Maybe you're new to the church, maybe this is the first time you're hearing of the Holy Spirit, or maybe you've heard him before and have some questions. I just want to step back and kind of give you a little bit of background of who the Holy Spirit is. The first thing for you to know is the Holy Spirit is part of what we call the triune God or the Trinity. We believe that we serve one true God, but he exists in three parts. God the Father, God the Son, and the third part that we're talking about today, God the Holy Spirit. Now this Holy Spirit is not something that God just came up with and created late in the game because he realized we weren't making it on our own. The Holy Spirit was part of the Trinity from the very beginning of time. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and read the creation story, you see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the water before God creates the earth. And before God creates man, you get a glimpse of a conversation that God is having among the members of the Trinity where he says, let us make humankind in our image. So he is the one God, yet he's talking as if it's plural, talking to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, saying, let's make humans in our image. So we see that the Holy Spirit has been around since the very beginning of time. Fast forward to the Gospels where you see Jesus on earth. In John chapter 16, verse 7, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and this is before he's taken away to get crucified, but he's letting his disciples know that he's eventually going to go back to heaven. And this, of course, is stressing his disciples out. They're anxious about this, but he's comforting them with these words because he says, if, 
it said, it's good that I'm going to leave you because when I go away, I'm going to send the advocate to you. And he's trying to convince them that this is going to be better. The Holy Spirit living with them is going to be better than if he were to stay on earth. And that's kind of hard for the disciples to comprehend because you see the point in history that they were experiencing was already revolutionary to them. If you look at the relationship between the nation of Israel and God in the Old Testament, God was always someone that they followed and listened to and worshipped from a distance. Maybe he was in the tabernacle when they were walking through the wilderness or leading the nation in a column of smoke or a pillar of fire. Once Jerusalem was established, his presence dwelled in the temple and the Hebrew people would go to the temple, worship him there, and come back to their homes. What was so revolutionary to them when Jesus came is we have God himself, not somewhere afar, but right next to them, sitting and eating with them, doing life with them. They had God with them, Emmanuel. And that was not something that they were willing to let go of very easily. But what Jesus was telling them was, it's going to get even better. Because what was going to happen when they received the Holy Spirit is they had already moved from God being far off to God being near them. What is about to happen now is God being near them to God being in them. And that's what we see in the book of Acts in the second chapter where the disciples are all gathered together uh, in an upper room at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes upon each one of them at first in the form of a flame over each one of their heads uh, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to share the message of Christ with thousands of people speaking in languages that they had never learned on their own but doing so through the power that the Holy Spirit had given them. So you can see the Holy Spirit is such a key part of the Trinity, established as part of that Trinity from the very beginning, promised by Jesus himself while he was on earth, and fulfilled in the book of Acts at Pentecost. So that's who the Holy Spirit is. And what I want to go over next is what we get from this gift of the Holy Spirit. And what we get is a new life. So the image that you uh, see on the screen right now is a butterfly coming out of its cocoon or, or chrysalis, uh, as it's called. And the butterfly essentially has a brand new life at that point in time. He is able to do things that he was never able to do as a caterpillar. But because of this transformation, he now has new life. We have that same thing uh, with the Holy Spirit. Once the Holy Spirit is in us, we're able to do things that we were never able to do in our own strength, in our old flesh. So this new life in the Spirit comes with three main things that I want to point out uh, or pick out of these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8. The first we see in verse 6, and that is a renewed mind. Romans uh, 8, 6 says that the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is is life and peace. Many times in infomercials, they'll use dramatic before and after pictures to show before you had the product, you look like this. Now with the product, you look like this. Well, what better before and after picture than a renewed mind? The mind that is governed by the flesh, when we let our own sinful desires uh, govern our mind, 
it leads to death. When we let the Spirit govern our mind, it leads to life and peace. What a beautiful before and after picture of the renewed mind that comes from a new life in the Holy Spirit. The second thing that we get is a restored relationship with God. In verses 8 and 9 of the 8th chapter, Paul explains that those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. They are unable to do that in their own strength. But he encourages us. He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. So if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are able to have a restored relationship with God, the relationship that God intended you and him to have all the way back in creation. That was part of his original plan. And Paul explains that you can have that restored relationship if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. The third thing that I want to point out in this new life in the Spirit is resurrection power. The, when we talk about the restored relationship, we say you are in the realm of the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. Verse 11 gives us confidence to know that the Spirit of God does live in you. He encourages us with these words. He says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who does live in you. So you can see we have our mind transformed. That transforms the relationship that we're able to have with God. And it does so not by our own strength. We can try all we want in our own flesh. It comes through the resurrection power living in us, the same power that was able to raise Christ from the dead. So that is quite an offer uh, that God gives to us and that Paul offers to us in Romans chapter 8. But you might be asking yourself, that's great, that sounds really good, but what do I do with it? How do I walk this out? How do I actually make this real in my life? So what I want to do is take a look at those three points uh, that we talked about for what comes from new life with the Holy Spirit and show what we need to do to walk that out. First of all, I said that the new life in the Holy Spirit comes with a renewed mind. The way we get that is by setting our minds on the things that the Spirit desires. Romans 8.5 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So when he talks about having your mind set on one thing or another, that comes down to a decision that each one of us needs to make. What am I going to choose to focus my mind on? Are my thoughts going to be geared towards my own selfish, sinful desires? Or am I going to choose to turn my thoughts from myself to the things that the Spirit desires? That is the step that we need to take to allow the Holy Spirit to place in us that renewed mind. Second of all, how do we restore the relationship with God? How do we live a life that can be pleasing to him? We see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, where Paul says, 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this takes it one step further. It's not just what we set our mind on. That that defines how we think or what we think about. But we also need to choose how we're going to live. For the righteous requirements of the law to be fully met in us, we need to not just think about the things of the Spirit, but we need to live according to what the Spirit wants. We need to choose to take those steps and walk out where the Spirit is guiding us. And lastly, we need to have a confidence that only comes from the resurrection power that the Holy Spirit gives us in verse 11. If we try and do this on our own, it becomes ritualistic or self-righteous or flat-out overwhelming trying to meet these requirements. We need to learn to set our own will aside to be able to say, I know I can't do this on my own, but I'm choosing to rely on the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead to raise me from the dead as well. So what I have next is a couple of questions that we can ask ourselves uh, and some checklists, if you will, uh, for kind of doing a self-assessment of where do I stand in this renewed mind and restored relationship and resurrection power to kind of get a gauge for, you know, how are we doing in in this walk with the Spirit? So each of our answers will be a little bit different. Uh, It's not necessarily something that we are going to share with those around us, but just offer you some time to to stop and to think about this. Uh, First of all, for the renewed mind, the question that I would ask you is, do your thoughts reflect what we read in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8? Philippians is another epistle written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and he has beautiful words here that help describe what things our mind should be set on. Uh, Philippians 4, 6 through 8 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is such a crucial verse for Christians to know, to guard your mind and make sure that the thoughts that you are thinking are in line with the thoughts of the Spirit. My wife just actually made a a painting of this verse, and we keep it hanging right next to our television, which I think is such an appropriate place for it. Because as we are watching things and we're, you know, letting these images come from the screen and bombard our minds, are they things that are true and noble and right and pure? Such a good check uh, to make sure that we are living and truly benefiting from this renewed mind that comes from from the Holy Spirit. The next question we can ask ourselves uh, as we're reflecting on this is, do my actions demonstrate Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23? You've probably heard this verse before. These are known as the fruit of the Spirit. And if the idea of fruit seems a little bit strange to you if we're talking about actions. Uh, Let me describe it this way before we get into the verse. When we moved into the house where we live now, it was in the middle of winter. There was, I don't know, at least a foot of snow on the ground. Uh, So we hadn't actually seen the lawn. We saw there were four trees in our backyard and we could tell they were probably fruit trees by the shape, but we couldn't tell what kind of fruit trees they were. 
we had to wait until winter turned to spring and spring turned to summer and we actually saw what fruit was growing on those trees to know that they were peach trees because it's the fruit that the tree produces that tells you what kind of tree it is. So the fruit of the spirit, what that does is that's something that we can see externally. We can see how a person is living and that gives you an indication of what kind of spirit is in them. So let's read these verses. Again, Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, what, what Paul is doing here when he lists out the fruits of the Spirit is he is turning our attention away from what we should do and focusing on how we should be. Because if we can demonstrate these fruits in our lives, if we can be a person who shows love, a person who can have joy even when circumstances are not what they planned, someone who can demonstrate peace when they're not sure what's going on around them, these are people who are going to be showing the fruit of the Spirit. And in verse 23, he says, against such things, there is no law. So what he's saying is, if you can be this way, the things that you're going to do are going to be things that are consistent with the laws. The opposite is not necessarily true. If we only focus on what to do and we do all of the right things, that's no guarantee that we are going to be the right way. So the order is important here. If we can demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, if we can let the Holy Spirit demonstrate these things and make this who we are, we don't have to worry so much about what we're going to do. It's just going to be a natural outflow of the Spirit that's already in us. And lastly, I would ask, do I rely on the power that's described in Acts 1.8? In the first chapter of Acts, uh, Luke, the, the author of the book, tells the story of Jesus after he's resurrected from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples, and he's about to ascend into heaven, and he gives his disciples instructions. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. He tells them, don't leave Jerusalem until then. When I picture this story unfolding uh, in my mind, I tend to picture Jesus looking right at Peter, because before Jesus was crucified, he saw what Peter looked like when Peter acted in his own strength and by his own mind. He saw when the soldiers came to take Jesus away, Peter lashed out and chopped off a man's ear with his sword. He saw when Jesus was being tried by the, uh, by the Jewish leaders, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. That was the Peter governed by Peter's own flesh. So Jesus was telling all of the disciples, but again, I like to picture him, especially looking at Peter, just wait, don't do anything foolish, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And he tells them in verse 8 of that first chapter of Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's where they were staying, and then in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples were not going to go out and try and do things on their own, with their own abilities or 
what made sense in their own mind because Jesus had seen them and he knew how that was going to play out. He told them, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. Then you will receive power and then you will truly be able to be witnesses for me in your local area and all the way out to the ends of the earth. He was instructing them to not rely on their own power, on their own wisdom, but to accept the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. So there's so much more we could talk about uh, in this uh, section where we're looking at the new life that comes with the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to be doing is we are dedicating the month of February just to Romans chapter 8 and the new life that we have in the Spirit. So each week within this month, we're going to look at another section of chapter 8 and bite off another chunk of what it means to have new life through the Holy Spirit. So I hope you'll continue to join us week after week uh, so that you can continue to grow with us on this journey. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to be praying to, to close out this sermon. Uh, but once I do that, there's going to be a few questions that we'll leave up on the screen uh, for you to take down. You can pause it, uh, take a picture, uh, just some questions for you to reflect on as you think about uh, this sermon and the message that we heard from Romans chapter 8. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hold all things in your hands and that nothing takes you by surprise, whether it's pandemics or snowstorms. Uh, you have everything under control and you send your Holy Spirit to continue to work in ways that only you could do. We thank you that you chose to send your son to die for us, uh, even when we were still sinners and when we were rebelling against you. And we thank you that you didn't stop there, but you continued to also give us your Holy Spirit to renew our minds, to restore our relationships with you, and to give you a resurrection power that enables, to do, enables us to do so much more than we would ever be able to do on our own. I pray that you would bless each person that is watching this and that is listening to this message, and I pray that they would just be moved in their hearts to draw closer to you and take another step in that renewal of their mind and that restoration of their, of, of their relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, I'm going to have, leave these questions up on the screen. Just some things for you to think about as you think about the timeline laid out in the book of Romans. First of all, am I still trying to be good enough on my own? Are you still in that first stage of struggling with sin and trying to meet God's righteous requirements? Next question would be, have I accepted God's free gift of salvation? If you have, then the third question is, what do I need to yield to the Holy Spirit's power? Is it something in my mind, the way I've been thinking, something in my actions, the way I've been living? What do I need to turn over so that I can live that new life that God intended through his Holy Spirit? Again, thank you for your time this morning.